One of our most fundamental constitutional rights is an impartial jury. But how do you get one of those unicorns? I mean, especially if you're poor or black. It all comes down to jury selection. And unfortunately, courts want to go through jury selection as quickly as possible. And judges often see the main goal of jury selection as identifying and neutralizing biases to get jurors to set those biases aside as if it's possible to set a bias aside, as if that's something that a real person could actually do just because a person in a black role tells them to do it. This can lead to trial counsel resorting to assumptions and stereotypes about potential jurors, which brings in their own bias. What needs to happen is that judges and trial counsel, they have to shift the goal of jury selection to uncovering how biases affect a juror's thought process and decision making. And welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways our legal system doesn't work for us. I'm an attorney and your host, Mary Whiteside. Joining us is Rianne Jones. She's a partner at Easton, Thompson, Kasparik, and Schifrin. Rianne is a family court and criminal court practitioner. She is Welsh, which means she comes from Wales. So you're going to get to hear her brilliant accent. Rianne is bringing her extensive trial and courtroom experience to you to discuss how we can have more fair jury trials. Welcome, Rianne. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Mary? I'm good. Now, Rianne, we talked because I, I really wanted to have her on the show because she had a recent case. Rianne, can you tell us what case inspired you to want to talk about this topic? Yes. Yeah, so I had a, a murder case in November of last year. It lasted about three weeks over several days. Uh, our client was a was charged as an accomplice on a murder second trial. His sole role, even by the prosecutor's admission, was that he drove the alleged shooter to the scene of the shooting and then drove the shooter away from the scene of the shooting after the shooting took place. Um, there's many details I could describe past that, but there was no other real evidence that demonstrated that he intended to have the deceased killed, which is an essential element of a compass testimony on a murder second, and no other evidence that he really knew the shooter. His statement to the police was that he was an unofficial Uber driver, which is not uncommon in uh, poor neighborhoods in certain cities, particularly in Rochester, something I've heard of uh, a lot over the last year or so. He was unable to be an official Uber driver because he had lost his driver's license. And there wasn't really any other evidence uh, any more than what I've described to you. My partner, who was my co-counsel in that murder case, indicated that it was the weakest murder that he had ever seen against a defendant, my partner, Don Thompson. And he has been practicing, uh, I'd, I'd say, close to 30 years criminal defense. And so you're never confident going into a trial, but I did not expect that he would be convicted. And our client was convicted on that type of evidence. I am 100% sure. It's very difficult to say that as an attorney. I've never said it before. 
that he had nothing to do with this murder and there's been a, a man that's been wrongfully convicted, I think mainly because of the jury, well, wholly because of the jury that we had. I spoke with them when the trial was concluded. What type of jury, given all of this and what you knew about the case coming into it, what type of jury did you guys want? So in my mind, with this, you know, we always, as defense attorneys, ironically, I think prosecutors would say, maybe would not admit this, but it's what we all know. We want intelligent jurors, educated jurors in a case like this, who will analyze the evidence, uh, be detail-oriented uh, so that they could accept that there was no evidence, follow legal instructions very carefully, considering that there's no evidence. And on a murder case, I'm always cognizant of people who would be afraid to acquit someone who has been charged with murder. I think, and I think most defense attorneys that practice at this level will tell you that on a murder case, the burden of proof is diluted, even though it shouldn't be, because people are afraid of letting murderers free. When I was doing trials, I, I really wanted critical thinkers. That's what I would describe them as, you know, people who are independent thinkers. Strong uh, thinkers, somebody who would be willing also to stand up to other jurors, who would be too quick to convict. That was also something that we were looking for. So what happened at jury selection in this case? So at jury selection, I think that maybe I didn't go with my gut as well as I should have about some people. So I regret that, although it's a difficult, it's so quick, it happened so quick. There's so many people, you know, seated in one place at one time uh, where we practice. We don't decide who to strike really until we're in a private room. And so sometimes it's hard for me to remember faces, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to remember which ones are which, for example. But I think in this case, which is why I wanted to talk about this topic, there were people on that jury pool that I think would have uh, turned the verdict around, but they were stricken by the prosecutor uh, with preemptory challenges. And so thinking back and after speaking to the juries that were the jurors that were on the jury when the trial was concluded, I just kept thinking about that. And I think that particularly with one of the passes, there were three or four people that were stricken when they were perfectly qualified jurors by the prosecutor that I think would have uh, resulted in a different verdict. Do you think there was any uh, racial issues in, in this case in particular? I thought it was okay. Um, there wasn't anybody that I was particularly concerned about, maybe one or two people. And there were um, certain jurors that I was shocked speaking with after the trial um, when I realized that they thought in a way that I didn't think that they would thinking. So that, you know, concerned me. There was one juror, actually, now I'm thinking about it, that I didn't question that much during voir dire, and I probably should have. I was kind of going with my gut about how she presented herself. And I think attorneys do do that sometimes. Um, one of my partners says that he says that every, every time we have a trial together, 
he likes to pick jurors who he would like to speak with at a cocktail party. And I think what he means by that is that we think a certain way as defense attorneys, you know, critical, defense-minded, absence of evidence, uh, to try to pick jurors who think like us. I tried to do that too. And that really goes into the jury pool too, because we had a very limited jury pool. Our client was a black male, uh, young, uh, lived in the city, was disabled, so he didn't work and would uh, you know, hang out at various outside various stores. There was video in the case. And uh, a few of the jurors after the trial ended, it was clear to me that they came to certain assumptions about a black male hanging out hanging outside a corner store during the day. Uh, there was some some mention of gang-related activities, although there was no proof that he was in a gang or the alleged shooter, but it was clear that the jurors jumped to that conclusion in rendering their verdict, I think, uh, because that's what they revealed to me after the verdict came in, which was uh, very disconcerting. Was there any proof that these two guys knew each other before the no. he was in the, the shooter was in the car? No, no proof. There wasn't even uh, proof of any messages going forth between them before or after the shooting. It was just a, a message sent to him for a ride. And, you know, we, we introduced several defense witnesses that had been given rides by our client and paid him, uh, who didn't know him personally, to establish that he was this unofficial Uber driver. But How do they get, how does an unofficial Uber driver get rides uh in in this particular case people would send facebook messages so you know in a small community in the city people were friends with each other i guess shared his contact and he would usually receive facebook uh, messages from people for rides okay do you feel that there was any reason or ability to make a batson challenge actually i should i should go back and explain what a batson challenge is before we get into that so in 1986 the supreme court in the in a case us versus batson placed restrictions on the use of preemptory challenges so it made it illegal to strike a juror solely on the basis of race sex ethnicity religion all of that's unconstitutional and defense counsel can make what's called a batson challenge if you think that the prosecutor is striking jurors based on these characteristics. And then the burden shifts to the prosecutor to state a neutral, non-discriminatory, reasonable reason why they would want to strike this juror down. And then the, it goes back to the defense and they can try to prove why the prosecutor's reason is what's called pretextual. In other words, a dirty, dirty lie. So, um, and if the courts screw up on Batson challenges and they don't grant them when they should, then it goes to attorneys like me who argue it on appeal. So, uh, and if the defense wins, then the excluded juror gets on the jury. So that's, that's what a Batson challenge is. So do you think there is any, any basis for a Batson challenge? I mean, it's kind of hard because there has to be a pattern for you to make a Batson challenge. So if you have a small jury pool with very few, uh, black jurors on it, then how can you establish a pattern? Yes. So in our case, uh, we didn't have many African-Americans in the jury pool to begin with. Um, I think 
well, we had juries in the box. Um, and for people who don't know that, during jury selection, the judge will see 21 people in the jury box. Um, and then we would have a certain period of time to question those jurors. And in this particular case, until we able, we're able to get 12 jurors, usually two alternates on a murder case. Um, we had three passes, meaning three uh, different sets of 21 people in the box. And I think there were only two African-American jurors, prospective jurors, throughout those three passes. So out of 63 people, like quick math. So the prosecutor struck one with a preemptory challenge and kept another. And so we did. Can you talk about the amount of time, like go through kind of the process of, of the jury selection? Because personally, I, I really found that courts were super impatient about jury selection and just didn't give you enough time. And you said that you didn't, there was one jury you didn't even think you questioned very much. So I'd like you to talk about the timing of the, that you were given by the court. Yeah, so um, in this trial, I think it was 20 minutes, and some judges adjust the timing also as the passes progress. So again, the passes are shortening. They shorten, yeah. they shorten so the in this time. trial for the first pass, so the first time we had 21 prospective jurors in the box, in the jury box, we had 20 minutes. So to be able to question 21 jurors in 21, you know, in 20 minutes is really impossible. I think I could have used at least twice that amount of time with this particular jury. And I think then the next pass was reduced to 15 minutes. There's been times where I've had five minutes on the last pass, even though there's just as many jurors in the box on the third pass as there are on the first pass. I think judges tend to try to justify it by saying that the jurors who were in the, the latter passes were in the audience and still able to listen to everything the judges instructed, you know, previous prospective jurors on and what the attorneys have. But that's irrelevant, really, because that doesn't mean then that people on the third pass are going to be suddenly honest about biases without being questioned about them and, and challenged because people, you know, as human beings do not like to admit that they are prejudiced. It's not an easy thing to develop. And they tend to want to please people. Like they, they don't want to embarrass themselves. They want to agree with what they think is the right thing to say. And the longer they're in the courtroom listening to all of this, I think, you know, they come to realize what the right thing to say is um, rather than what they actually think, which is which is the issue. Yeah. Oh, and judges have, you know, an, an enormous amount of discretion in order to in how they do jury selection. They they they're the ones who come up with these kind of arbitrary time frames as to how long each side's going to get to question and that it gets quicker and uh, they don't limit their own amount of time. They they can blab on as long as they want. Um, but, you know, we're supposed to figure out and sometimes they use jury questionnaires. I've had that a couple of times where the jurors fill out and they answer questions ahead of time, but then I also, but then I didn't have a ton of time to read those. They give them to you, and you're just like, "Here's a stack of papers, go." You know, you're like, "Okay, well." And you know, those, those jury questionnaires—they're very limited. I mean, I, I mean, in that way, you have to have, I think, 
preconceived ideas about how someone thinks in a certain profession or depending on where, where someone lives. It's just those questionnaires are usually just age, whether they're married, how many children do they have, where do they work, uh, where they've lived before, have they previously served on a jury, you know, not questions that were exposed biases, just general questions about their background, which, you know, you could have two engineers that are completely different just because they're engineers doesn't mean that. And I use engineers because I think defense attorneys tend to want to pick them, but all engineers are different. I think I might say, describe your feelings about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter? Yeah, I might ask a juror. I might ask a juror to do that. And then, and then just, or defund the police, you know, just hit right at some things and then get a discussion going. Sometimes you're the only one doing jury selection too. It's helpful if you have somebody with you who can be watching body language and stuff that you could be missing because you're focusing on this person where somebody, and you're missing the information that you're getting from somebody down, you know, sit three people down. Yes. I mean, it's impossible to try and murder case alone, I think, um, our firm, we always have two attorneys on Medicaid. Yeah. Always, yeah. always have. But getting at bias, uh, you know, I think it is, it's extremely difficult because people, you know, you have your conscious and your unconscious bias. So, you you know, you, you might not have any idea that you feel a certain way about something and that it affects you. And how in an extremely brief period of time are attorneys supposed to get that, you know, and, and, uh, kind of getting at those questions where you allow them to talk and you can get, and then you can allow some person to talk and then you can be like, well, who does every, who agrees with this? Who disagrees with that? And then you can kind of yeah. get groups of people, you know, and then someone else scanning for the body language. I, I don't, you know, in those constraints, I don't know how you can jump at that stuff yeah, and, yeah. and really get people to talk about it. I think those, are very good ideas and I'm thinking I'm going to do that with my next trial because you know asking someone for example how they feel about black lives matter does expose many prejudices potentially um that would be vital in cases that we try yeah um and you know and you have to have people talk I've seen people pick a jury where they asked to you know um just kind of cross-examining jurors in a way by saying you promise to do this, don't you? Everyone's going to say yes. I don't understand why people do that. I always try to have jurors speak as much as possible so that they are speaking more than I am. And then you have to pick on individual jurors, I think. You know, do you agree? I do think, I think you have to call them out. You have to make that person feel uncomfortable and then ask other people, ask everybody else to weigh in on how they feel about what that person said. Yes. And do they, I usually say, do you agree with what they've said and why? And then have them speak. Mm-hmm. So that's the best way to try to see. But, you know, there's been times where jurors have told me things and then have um, rendered verdicts that don't really, that you don't think would have occurred and said things to me afterwards that are contrary to how they portrayed themselves. So you have a specific example? Um, I'm trying to think about the last trial. I think we did a lot of, you know, the more I think about this too, I don't think it's effective at all. Prosecutors in particular tend to use like scenarios 
that kind of go along with maybe an accomplice theory? I mean, what what the elements that would be needed for convicting someone as an accomplice to, for example, a shooter? And it's just, I, I think it's just an exercise of jurors trying to figure out like a type of puzzle, which doesn't really tell you anything. Um, I think that's the last time I was disappointed when, I don't remember the scenario I used, but it was about someone being involved in something with someone else, but not intending the consequence. But I don't remember what the um, scenario was now. And the person gave very open-ended, intelligent answers. It was kind of looking at things from different ways. And when I spoke to this particular juror afterwards, the, conclu- the inappropriate conclusions that she drew from the evidence and completely ignoring the very thing that she described in this scenario was just shock, shock, outstanding, just astounding to me. So you don't know. Yeah, it's hard. I'm kind of a conservative person and, and not, I mean, I'm not really conservative, but I'm a conservative in the sense that I like control over things. In trial, there's no control. No, you just you can prep as much as you want. You can prep your witnesses. You can think you know what's going on, and you get in trial, and it is it things just go differently. It always goes different than you think it's going to go, and so I don't like that because it's a high stakes gambling. You know, you could win it all, you could lose it all. Um, although clients are much more high stakes gamblers yes. than I am, so I would prefer to know what's going to happen. Sometimes you have to try a case. Yeah, and you know. Never going to happen. I mean, you could have a witness with a very detailed witness statement, and maybe not even half of it is is testified to right. at the trial. Right, and you're pulling teeth to get it out, and it just doesn't come, and you're like, no, yes. yeah, yeah. Or new facts come up, things you never yeah. would have thought this person yeah. was going to say. Yeah, yeah, it's. And then you just have to shift. Sometimes have to shift, shift right in the middle of the trial and change mm-hmm. everything around. Which is always scary and dangerous and, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, we had discussed before, you know, this idea of banning preemptory challenges. And they they did that. 2022 the, in Arizona, they have banned preemptory challenges. And we're going to get to see, you know, if it's going to take time to see how that actually uh, affects cases. Is that going to make jury trials more fair or less fair? I mean, I, I'm sure that researchers are going to be looking at that. Um, it's obviously too soon, you know, to get any type of data. So in Arizona, lawyers are no longer going to be able to dis- dismiss potential jurors without stating a reason why. Personally, liked preemptory challenges because I could get rid of people that clearly were very pro-police and that it what they weren't going to get dismissed for cause, but it was very obvious that they were very pro-police. And no matter how many times they asserted that they could be fair and impartial, I just didn't believe them. And I think there's more of them, at least in the jury panels that I saw. There was more of those people. They were a bigger danger. Yes. And, you know, I don't know. This This is just something I've been thinking about recently. And I actually look back on, on Batson in preparation for this. And as part of the Batson decision, Justice Marshall actually advised in that decision that ba- that um preemptory challenges should be eliminated completely. And that was uh, his suggestion in that decision. And I can see why, you know, often in trials even, you have to, I think, balance 
the advantage of doing something versus, uh, you know, the potential harm of it and whether doing that creates a greater advantage than maybe the potential harm. So I've been thinking about that also in terms of preemptory challenges. So, you know, it is great to have that challenge where you can. And I think the example you gave is the most obvious example, I think, for defense attorneys. These pro-police people will not admit it. I mean, that happens. You know, you can cross-examine them, try to get them for cause. You know they're going to follow with what what, what the police says, even what the government's um cases or theory is more likely to follow it. But then there are people on jurors, juries that are so strong sometimes, and you know that they would be just so good for your case, and the prosecutor knows it and preempts them just because of that. So it is the danger of not having the preempt for the defense more dangerous than stopping a prosecutor from eliminating perfectly intelligent, strong jurors for no reason. I mean, maybe we ju- would just have more hung juries. Maybe. And, you know, in this case, that would have been perfectly fine because I don't think they would have tried the case again. So, I mean, we were at a hung jury after two days and then one more half day guilty verdict within two hours, which just astounds me. And obviously that's because the standouts were not strong enough. You know, so you have to think about those things. I think the standouts caved then were not strong, you know, strong enough to say, I'm not going to go with you. This is my belief. So, you know, thinking about this particular jury, particularly in the first pass, mm-hmm. just how it, at least the calling of the jurors' names coming into the box is random. And so, you know, you're probably not going to get five pro police people in a row. And then, you know, the way that the preempts go, the prosecutor, I think, eliminated five or six jurors that I think if one or two of them had been on this jury, there would have been a different result. And I feel as I want to stop them from being able to do that more than me being have, you know, me having the ability to maybe eliminate these pro police people. Interesting. Maybe just cross examining jurors more than. Being polite to try to get them from for causes is a is an answer. I mean, I've been able to do that a lot by asking very direct questions. Yeah, there's a judge I can't remember in researching this. I saw it, and he's like, I think that the fairest juror is just the first twelve people in the box. And I can't say I ever felt that way when I was selecting jurors. I, I never would have wanted the first twelve people in the box. You know, I wasn't really looking at it in the same way you were. Maybe I could come around to that view. And maybe it depends on, you know, how they're called. I mean, it's so random. So I think jury selection is the hardest part because it's so, it's not specific. There's no real science to it at all. Yeah. I don't think yeah. there's real, any, re, any real method to it because it depends who's in the box, I think, a lot of the time. Well, that gets to the jury pool issues. That, that's the main problem. Yeah. Is is the jury pool? I mean, in, in in an area like Rochester, which is where I did all my trials, where you're doing your trials for the most part, it's a heavily suburban jury pool, and there there's a big discrepancy between socioeconomic and racial makeup between the suburbs and the city. And as you said, in this particular jury, you know, you out of sixty three, there was three African American jurors. That's 
an incredibly small percentage that's not even close to being an accurate representation of the percent of their percentage of the population you know there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to have a much more yes. fair jury pool yes and you know just in just expanding on that a little bit in this case you know we have a an alleged murder that happens in the inner city here the jury pool is countywide there were certain concepts in our trial that we needed people who live in certain areas of the city to understand because it's a way of life. For example, hanging outside the store with 10 other people in the middle of the day, as opposed to being at work. And, you know, that doesn't mean anything. It's just what some people do in certain areas. These Jews were troubled by that when there was nothing, no significance to be attached to it. Somebody who lived in that particular area of the city would have understood that that didn't, that didn't mean anything. Right. Not without more. No. And also this idea of an unofficial Uber driver. I think that that's also something that somebody isn't going to really understand why you would need to, why would that need to happen? Why couldn't you just call an Uber driver? Why would somebody need to do this? None of that, like a creative capitalism isn't something that they're going to really get. So that's also going to seem suspicious. Yes. You know, that, that some people don't have credit cards or bank accounts, right? So they pay the unofficial Uber driver cash. I mean, that's just completely foreign to someone who lives in certain neighborhoods outside the city. Yeah. Right. If you ask them, they'd probably think there isn't anyone who doesn't have a bank account, who is, isn't homeless or, you know, but it's a standard thing with clients of mine who live in certain areas of the city. Right. Poverty stricken. Yeah. So there's class issues that they're not represented either. So it's it's not just race, but it's also class issues and having to make ends meet in creative ways. There's nothing illegal about being an unofficial Uber driver. No, but they didn't, you know, they're just the, all of those small things added up to them. That he would, the one phrase that one of the jurors said to me was, he was up to something. Something, something. And that was something. big, which is up to something, whatever that is. And that up to something could just be making ends meet in a way that's different than how you are able to do it and need to do it. Yeah, but they don't understand it. Right. Yeah. And so th getting to that type of a bias, you know, and, and having the ability to do that, I mean, that that's only going to happen with more time. With more time, if certain people are willing to admit that type of bias right in front of a court courtroom full of, of people. I mean, that is where the, that is the jury, that is the attorney's job, right? That is, that's, we, that is the defense attorney's job is to try to ask those questions that are going to get to that. And it's something that I think is kind of undertrained. Yes. In, in how to do that. And it, there's some psychology to it, you know, and, and creativity that's, uh, that's involved in people. Please, please test out my, my, my suggestions on Black Lives Matter and defund the police. I think that that might. Oh, I will. I, will. I think that might. As soon as you start to think in. I think that might. It might. You know, it might. It might not work. And and if it doesn't, then move on to something else. You know, have a plan B. Have a plan C on that type of stuff. You know. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be. I'd be really interested to to hear how how that works. Well, I'm going to because people people have such a dramatic, if that's the right word, reactions yeah. to that movement. Right. Every time I've spoken to someone about it. Right. And you're going to you're going to be able to it's it's because when things are polarized in that way, 
you know, you're going to get, you're going to get some information about that. I, I really think that there's going to be f- a few people that are neutral on it. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. People either agree with it or don't, right? And you want to know why? And that's going to reveal a lot about jurors on cases like the ones I tried. But, you know, Trump was a, Trump was just indicted, right? So he's going to fa- be facing, I'm sure he's going to want a trial. You know, he's going to want the theater of a trial in New York City. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And you're going to get to see that courts are perfectly capable of putting the resources towards jury selection when they're being watched by the news media and when they want to. Yes. But there's going to be reporters reporting on that. Yes. Right. Can you get more profile, high profile than the president of the United States? I mean, come on. That's going to be quite a jury selection. I mean, really, if you, to get it biased, uh, this is this is a case to, to watch as to what happens and how much time attorneys are given and do they do extensive Mm -hmm. jury questionnaires ahead of time? How big is the jury pool that they're going to pull from? Because they're not going to want to embarrass themselves. They're going to expend a lot of time and resources on this particular case in ways that they don't do for, you know, just some guy. Yes. And, you know, that's a question as to whether that's fair. Yeah. Because I've seen it in other cases, in other high-profile cases. That's why I know that, you know, they can do these extensive jury, you know, questionnaires and they can have days and days and weeks of jury selection, huge pools to try to get a fair jury if they want to. I agree. That will probably reveal quite quite a bit. And questioning jurors individually in private. Um, I would imagine that would happen. Yeah, I would imagine too, because, you know, the courts know that they're going to be appealed likely and so they're going to want to do everything absolutely perfect and it's difficult it's difficult on an appeal if there's no you know if you didn't make a batson challenge or wasn't an ability to do that on appeal i can't question the jury pool i can't get at that there's no there's no vehicle for me to to address that so these things perpetuate on and on these systemic issues perpetuate on and on there's nothing yes there's nothing that can be done about it when the case is over you can't go back and even even if it's the crucial reason as to why there was a conviction, it's untouchable on appeal, yeah. that particular type of issue. Really, judges are the ones who could fix this issue right now. Yeah, simply by giving more time would be an excellent start. And I don't, you know, how to fix the jury pool logistically, I'm not sure how we do that. No, I know that I haven't done this, but I know... Certain other uh, partners in my firm have challenged certain jury pools. So, like, write a jury select. How do they do that? I haven't done it yet, but that's probably something that I should start doing too, depending on the case. So, what's next for this case? Appeal, yes. Appeal. Uh, we've actually we he hasn't been sentenced yet because unfortunately he has uh, sickle cell anemia, which made things a lot more tragic, really. Under the circumstances, he was, we actually had him released pretty close to the arrest. Um, and he was out on bail for the entire, uh, t- entire trial, awaiting trial and being taken in at the end of the trial was heartbreaking. Um, and so we've had him kept in the local jail because they're managing his condition, going to file a 330 motion to try to have the verdict set aside before sentencing but we have an appellate attorney assigned already we've ordered the transcript 
and we're hoping to have an appeal perfected uh, as soon as possible. All right. What about asking for like just a standard practice, uh, objecting to the length of time that the court is setting? Now, I know this is tricky, right? Because you are already, you know, the beginning of the case, you want the judge, you don't want to tick the judge off and you'd be criticizing the court's procedure, which they get to dictate this. You know, they, a different judge could do different things. They could do different things on the same judge could do one thing on one case and one thing on another. They have a lot of a wide berth of discretion, but that it would be an option um, to set up an appellate issue that we could work on is objecting to the amount and length of jury selection yes more time and saying that this is you know this is insufficient to you know and and work on just a regular objection you know when you get that standard because 20 minutes is pretty standard 20 minutes 15 10 they, they kind of do that and there's no there's no basis for it there's no scientific basis you know there's also no scientific basis that says that a person is able to set aside a bias in their mind there no science does not say that that's a possible thing that can be done no. but we act in courts as if it is a possible thing that everybody can just do it a judge just says it and then it and then the person nods their head or says yes affirmatively because i got to say yes on the record and that of course then that's what happens there's there's no science that says that's real and most people say yes when a judge leads them to say that you can put that aside can't I no would. one's gonna want most people don't want no, no like there's a not. few there's a few jerks well, they will. there's a few jerks that get up there and say i want to leave right so they will say the most racist horrible vile stuff just so yes. that they can get off a jury right there are all of those people who have absolutely no shame and i and and, and goodbye frankly yes. <laughs> you know so uh, that's an idea i don't know i think we should always ask right I don't think there's case law that supports longer than 20, 30 minutes, right? I think even shorter than 20 minutes has been upheld as a reasonable time for a pass on voir dire, unfortunately. Yeah, but that's just because courts are saying that it is, right? There's no yes. basis for it. And, and, you know, things change over time. And when appellate judges change, we should be asking for more time. There's no real reason why the judge couldn't extend a time time frame in the middle of, of Wadir if you're just like, you know, we really we're not getting at this issue. People they have more to say. Sometimes I think we're too timid. We're too timid and, and just wanting us as a trial attorney, too timid to not wanting to, to, you know, make them mad. I don't think I ever feel like that, but um I mean we could if I do because it's you're you're going outside the norm. Attorneys don't do that. Yes right but we can but why not we can. yes don would do it <laughs> don would do it <laughs> don would do it yes he would he does he would. often we didn't in this case and i don't know why we didn't because it isn't done normally you don't normally yeah. say you know your honor i think we need you have yeah we've asked for more time before oh, okay it's usually denied yeah oh yeah it's going to be denied uh, i oh, i i'm yes. sorry <laughs> Did I was I implying that they were granted? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because twenty minutes is enough because everyone else does it, right? That's the uh, that's the reason, which isn't a reason. I think I will wrap this up, Rianne. I really want to thank you for coming on and talking about this. Oh, well done. You're welcome. Jury trials are absolutely a fundamental right. If we're not getting proper juries, then are defendants really getting 
the benefit of the jury trial. I think there's a real question about that. And it's a really important issue for people to think about. So thank you for for sharing your experience. I'm sorry. It's heartbreaking when you get a case that you really feel should win and it doesn't. I carry those cases, not like the person doing the time, but it's important to acknowledge the cost that that has on us as professionals. I know. You know what it is. It's hard to switch off. So. All right. Well, this episode was written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside, mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson, social media by Jen Nicholson. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Court Pod. You can also find me at Displease the Court on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and shortly YouTube Shorts and a YouTube channel. You can also drop us an email at mayatdispleasethecourt at gmail.com. We would love you to rate and review the show, share it, save it, follow it. It helps others find the program. Our theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing just $9. You can check out the show notes to learn more about all these topics. Hit the crime, paid more than-